0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark
1: Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight is uh, February 21st, 2007, and I'm continuing a series of talks on the Four Noble Truths, and I've been following along through the book The Mind in the Way by Ajahn Samedo. If anybody's interested in getting a hold of the book, you can come up, take a look, get the information at the end of the class. And uh, in the last few weeks, I've been talking about, and Patrice spoke on Sunday night, about the uh, second and third noble truths. So I thought tonight I'd read a little bit from this first discourse the Buddha gave. It's sometimes referred to as the talk that set the wheel of Dhamma in motion. And the reason it's called that is that in giving this talk to his five friends, five spiritual friends, one of them understood it, had insight like the Buddha had under the Bodhi tree. And so in that sense, it's the, the talk that uh, helped the Buddha understand that people can get, can understand what he came to understand, that it's actually a teaching that can be passed on. So here's the Buddha talking about the first three noble truths in that talk. It's just maybe eight pages long, the whole talk. Now, this practitioner is the noble truth of stress or suffering. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So this just means we could say, in short, having a mind and having a body is stressful. Because the aggregates is just a way of dividing up the mind-body experience. So having a mind and body is stressful. And then he goes to the second noble truth. And this practitioner is the noble truth of the origination of stress. The craving that makes for further becoming. So, here, further becoming, you can even think of this simply as proliferation. Like when we have craving in the mind, it sort of sets in motion a proliferation of thought, of desiring, of wanting, of planning, comparing, worrying, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing here, relishing now here, now there craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming, like for something to end. And this practitioner is the noble truth of the cessation of stress, the remainderless, fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. And he talks about each of the three insights under each of these three noble truths. So in the first double truth he says, and he's describing to these five spiritual friends of his his own process, his own process of insight that he had under the uh, Bodhi tree a month or two before this talk was given. And he says to them, vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard, never seen before. And so then he describes what arose in his mind and this is how he described the three insights. This is the noble truth of stress. This noble truth of stress is to be comprehended or understood. This noble truth of stress has been understood. And then he goes again talking about the second noble truth. vision arose, insight arose and so on and so on within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of the origination of stress. This noble truth of the origination or cause of stress is to be abandoned. This noble truth of the cause of stress has been abandoned. And then he says the same with the third noble truth. Vision arose, insight arose, and on and on like that. And then he goes, This is the noble truth of the cessation of stress. This noble truth of the cessation of stress is to be is to be directly experienced. This noble truth of the cessation of stress has been directly experienced. So this is basically an example of the noting strategy. right? Because you can just imagine the Buddha sitting there under the Bodhi tree and doing his practice, and the mind's quiet, deep concentration, and suffering some sort of stress arises. And he just notices, or maybe even notes, Like he says here, this is the noble truth of stress, right? We can do the same thing. Oh, this is stress, or this is suffering, or this is knowing the mind being burdened. This is exactly what we need to do in our practice. As we're sitting, following the breath, and then the mind gets caught up, then there needs to be this in-the-moment recognition, oh, this is stress stress is like this. or if you can be more specific, like worrying is like this. you know so you can name the particular stress. Now whether you actually give it a name in your mind while you're practicing or just notice it, it's really the same. The noting, you know using words to label or note what's going on is just a particular technique that can help clarify it's like putting a frame around the experience. Oh, This is what's being seen, or this is what's being known in the moment. The heart is burdened by this, you know, and you can name that. It's burdened by this painful memory. And so the Buddha names or notices stress, and then he notices this should be understood. So he's actually recognizing something in the moment, just like we can. Oh, this yucky feeling in my heart, this is relevant, this should be understood. And we can even say that to ourselves. It doesn't hurt if it helps clarify. We can even say those exact words. Oh, this should be understood. This feeling of being burdened, or this feeling of restlessness, or this feeling, whatever particular fr- flavor of distress or suffering, this should be understood. And then when we have completely open to it, so we're not resisting it, we're not trying to control the experience, but we're undefended and open with it, then... There's the recognition, and you can note it if it's helpful. This has been understood. And those are the three insights in the First Noble Truth. And then if we just continue to work with this experience, uh, being open with the suffering, with the stress, with the discomfort, we might see how it's being regenerated moment by moment. Oh, there is a cause. So the mind is caught in some way. It's not free yet. We're just at the point of understanding that the mind is caught up in some way. Caught up in worry, let's say. And so we're still there. We have enough presence, enough depth in our practice in this moment that we know the mind is caught up, but the mind isn't free yet. It's still caught up, still worrying, revisiting, still hooked by whatever this worries about. And then we understand, oh, because we as we open to it more fully the last part of the First Noble Truth this has been understood that means that we can begin to see that this experience of worry is being regenerated moment by moment we don't normally see it that way we normally think I'm worrying and it's like a a static or continuous experience but the actual stress of worry or any kind of suffering, the actual feeling of being burdened is recreated moment by moment. It's an arising. When we feel any suffering, it's arising in that moment. Now, it may arise in the next moment, and in the next moment, and in the next moment, and then we might assume, because we're not paying close attention, that it's it's an ongoing static experience of suffering or stress. But if we look closely, we see it's not that way. It arises... (laughs) and then it falls away, and as it's falling away, maybe it arises again. But it's dynamic in that way. And this is the insight into the Second Noble Truth, which is that suffering is an arising experience, which means it has causes. And the causes are present right now. It's not like, you know, what my mom said to me when I was five is the cause. What we're interested in are the causes that are present here in this moment. Like, what are the supporting causes that allow this to arise? Because of this, this suffering, this stress, this worry is arising. Without these supporting causes, this stress doesn't arise. The worry doesn't arise. So it gets really subtle here in the Second Noble Truth, where we're so open to the dukkha, to the suffering, the stress, the worrying, that we can start to see the dynamic. And you have to understand that this, it's only because we're open to the dukkha, we're not trying to get rid of it, that we get to see have this insight. If I try to immediately go to getting rid of the worry, I never have the insight in the Second Noble Truth, which is its cause, and that this cause should be abandoned, and that the cause has been abandoned. And that's what uh, Patricia and I talked about last week, uh, is this Second Noble Truth about this process of letting go. How is it that the mind lets go? It's really an interesting, it's really interesting. How does the mind let go? And the big trick here is the more intimate we become with any kind of stress or discomfort or worry or fear or shame or restlessness or wanting, anger, the more we want to define it and address it. We want to solve it on its terms. Well, in the terms of our, our current understanding, which is, you know, within some particular story, like, I need this to be happy. You know, I need to resolve this worry to be happy. And so we understand that the whole path that we're walking here, this path of awakening or the Buddhist path, it's about the development of understanding. It's not about developing skillful ways to solve human problems, like a skillful way to resolve relationship problems or skillful ways to solve livelihood issues. Although we might get quite skillful doing this practice, solving livelihood issues or solving relationship problems. But the practice really points to a deepening of understanding, like the very nature of the mind. And if we really work at that deepest level, then the more the surface of our life just starts to work better. So we have to let go of our fixation on the surface and really orient the mind towards a deepening of understanding. All I want, all I care about is understanding this experience of worry and the pain, the actual pain of it. Not understanding the worry as a story, but we're understanding the dukkha of the worry. The stress or the pain or the hurt of the worry. Does that make sense? And it's we really this is a tricky place to get to the second noble truth. We really need to understand this. We're not trying to solve the problem as a, uh, within the story. We're interested in understanding the hurt. Go right to the pain. So whether it's a physical problem we're involved with in the moment or emotional mental problem We want to go right to the hurt, right to the pain, right to the feeling of being burdened. That's what we want to understand. So the first double truth is about that. That's why we use the word dukkha, because it it helps us get away from the words we already know, like suffering or stress. And, you know, those are decent translations, but we usually think of stress in terms of the problem of stress. Like when I say I'm stressed, it's always about what? You know, what am I stressed about? But the actual experience of stress is what's relevant in terms of this practice. The actual feeling of being bound up tight, or the actual feeling of feeling burdened, or heavy, or numb. And so that's what we want to understand. There is stress. It should be understood. It has been understood. We're really making this transition from our normal way of dealing with problems, which is in terms of some story and thinking about like what's the better way of doing this to actually a more direct visceral experience like what's the actual feeling of being burdened it needs to be understood it has been understood and then we see that that feeling of being burdened or bound up or tight it's being recreated in every moment and then that's a realization that's an insight oh this experience of being bound up has a cause it's an activity that's being recreated every moment and therefore it has this cause and as we refine the attention we see the attachment here which is the cause should be abandoned it's like we really get oh yeah this is completely unnecessary and leads to pain leads to suffering that should be abandoned and this, and then, and then we drop it like we drop a hot pan. We just let go. So here's the trick of letting go. We can't want to let go. It's understanding that leads to letting go. So we let go when we see the cause thoroughly. So if you're sitting and you're, you know you're suffering, you have enough wherewithal, enough presence, you know you're really suffering. It could be something really simple, like you're just suffering getting to the end of the 30-minute sit, wishing it were over. It could be that simple. So you know you're suffering, and you know you should let go, because you heard someone talk about it once. You know, I should let go. But the letting go will happen when we know the restlessness or the irritation or boredom, whatever it is that we're experiencing there, and that's it. We know it so thoroughly, and that we begin to see how, in every moment, the mind is generating resistance. It's attached to some idea of what it's going to be like when we're done sitting, right? And so, in every moment, the mind is—it's basically squeezing the heart, right? The mind is contracting itself, like that. It's generating its own suffering. It's so shocking. And as soon as that's recognized, it is immediately released, at least for a moment. Because nobody intentionally, no mind, no heart, intentionally, consciously creates suffering like that. It's only done, we're we're actually trying to take care of ourselves. Somehow we think worrying or wanting things to be other than they are actually facilitates happiness. Right? I mean think about all the things we've craved for in our life. Has craving for things actually made it more likely that things were gonna these things were gonna arise in our lives? Or hating things made things different? All the hating and craving does is tighten the heart, it creates dukkha. So when we see that deeply enough, letting go happens. And if the letting go hasn't happened, if we're still caught still there with stress or suffering, feeling burdened, and and, like feeling burdened that the sit hasn't ended, it only means that we haven't opened completely, that the understanding isn't deep enough. And probably we're trying, the reason we haven't opened is that we're trying to make something happen, that we're not actually doing the spiritual path, we're doing the worldly path. And this is a nice way to hold the Four Noble Truths. Is like um, the worldly path. I mean, this is just, I'm just applying these words and defining them. So by worldly path, I mean when we're living in care of my life by avoiding things that are unpleasant and getting things that are pleasant, whether subtle or gross, that's the worldly life. And then the spiritual life is we're not seeking pleasant and avoiding unpleasant experiences, but we're lead, living a life for the deepening of understanding. Now, the truth is, that does lead to, to pleasant experience. But if we do that to have pleasant experience, it undermines the development of understanding. You see? So we we have to really... We'll get burnt over and over again, like... We think we're on a spiritual path, but we're really trying to get something from it. You know, we sit every day, but we're really just there striving to get something. And instead of watching TV to get some pleasure, we're sitting to get some pleasure. Now, it may be more wholesome to sit every day to get pleasure than it is to try to get pleasure from watching TV. But there's inherent tension in trying to get something from experience. We set ourselves up for insecurity and for suffering whenever we try to get something from experience. So this is why we cultivate a path of understanding instead of a path of acquisition. The worldly path is a path of acquisition. We all do this mostly. I don't know anybody who isn't heavily involved in a life of acquisition. But what I do know is I know a lot of people who are in the transition from a life of acquisition to gaining confidence and trust in a life of insight or understanding. And it, it just gives us another orientation. So the life of understanding or insight is really understanding that this heart is burdened, gets burdened, capable of being burdened and entangled, and that this this experience of being entangled has causes. These causes are moment to moment, and they can be seen, and in seeing them, they're abandoned. And when they're fully abandoned, we move to the third noble truth, which is there is a cessation of suffering, meaning it is possible, and it does happen that this heart is not burdened, is unentangled, not tangled up, not Full of stress and heaviness and when we see that moment it arises in the mind this should be deeply experienced or deeply understood or deeply realized meaning we want this moment of cessation of no stress we want it to be fully conscious And then we want to have the experience where we actually are there. Yeah, this is fully understood or this has been fully realized, the cessation. A heart that is free of uh, stress. This is what's meant by Nibbana or enlightenment. It's really this simple. Nibbana is the experience of a heart or mind that doesn't have any affliction. So in any moment where the heart is free of affliction, we call that a moment of awakening. We The mind has awakened. It's awake to the experience of being unburdened. Now, very few of us have very clear conscious experiences of the third noble truth, unless you've been cultivating a path or just have a lot of good um, sort of, in Buddhism, we call them paramis, but just sort of well-developed, mental, wholesome mental qualities that allow for this experience to be seen. We all have moments when the mind or heart is less afflicted, and so the the feeling of being burdened is relatively weak, not so strong. But to have a moment when the heart is completely free, and to be very conscious, awake to that moment, is it really undermines the whole pattern of creating suffering. So that's the power of insight, is it, it reorients our life, and we really see how unproductive the habit of attaching, getting attached to things is, how unnecessary it is, and how productive of suffering it is. It just leads to suffering, any attachment. But still now we don't, I mean, clearly, I think it's fair to say that we all basically feel justified in being attached to certain things. Like attached to being healthy. Anybody here not attached to being healthy? (laughs) Or attached to having food, you know, clean food. Or being liked and respected. Now, the nice thing about our life is it doesn't always deliver these things, at least in the way that we want them. And that's why we want to practice. We want to take advantage of that. And also in our sitting practice, you know, it's like we sit and we, we even actually make a point of creating really pleasant conditions to sit in. We find a nice room, a nice group of people or a nice quiet spot at home <clears throat> to sit, a nice time of day where we're not too sleepy or too restless, not too hungry or too full, right? sit in a comfortable way, so we're not too sleepy, not too comfortable, but not too tight in our sitting posture. But even then, having done all those things to make it the ideal situation, even then conditions arise that create the causes for the mind to react with attachment. Like, boy, I wish I hadn't committed to myself to sit for 30 minutes. Because it's feeling like I should really be doing something else right now, or you know, I wish I, I wish I had uh, closed the door so I couldn't hear my partner making all that noise in the other room, or you know, I wish the cat were sitting on my lap so we can start creating problems right then and there, and that's a perfect place to practice because what we want to do is we want to wake up to this right now the heart is burdened, it's entangled there's stress right now, tightness right now and this has a cause a a cause and the cause is right here it's not that I have to go shut the door and then this will go away but the cause is how I'm relating to the noise how I'm understanding it so we really work with understanding and the way The way we develop understanding is through intimacy. Just being intimate with the hurt of the First Noble Truth leads to the insight of the cause. And being intimate with the cause leads to the abandonment of it. And being intimate with the abandonment leads to the realization of cessation of a heart unburdened, or Nibbana, or enlightenment, a moment of awakening. This isn't full and complete enlightenment, but it's a moment of being unburdened, it's an insight. So they usually we use the word a realization of cessation. It's nice to put it in the negative, you know, instead of saying a realization of you know insight, you know, even a word like insight is relatively neutral, but then we can get attached to insight, some mystical, beautiful experience. But sensation is a much more pragmatic definition of this realization. Because we're realizing a heart or a mind unburdened with greed, unburdened with fear, unburdened with anger, irritation, unburdened with stress. What's that like? So this would be like great homework for us. That this week we have to go home and realize a moment of the heart being unburdened, at least to some degree. And what's that like? And when that's deep, what it reveals, it's like a, a vision arises about. The path, like how to live, that supports this freedom. What are the causes and conditions that support living in this way where the heart is unburdened? And so we call that Fourth Noble Truth the Eightfold Path. I'll talk about that next week. So I want to read a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho's book um, and his section on the Third Noble Truth. And as I mentioned, a lot of the third noble truth to have that realization of cessation really means being patient with the attachment. Because when we start to see attachment, we start to get that it's really unwholesome. And so if we're not careful, we're going to want to get rid of it or go into denial of it or justify it in some way. So we need a lot of patience with the attachment And with the suffering that arises because of that attachment and and so much of our practice is sitting you know or just living our life aware of attachment and the pain that the attachment brings on and just being patient until the awareness deepens like willing to stay in that yucky place until the awareness deepens trusting that if we if we uh, maintain this intention to understand this experience deeply, it, the understanding itself will transform it. And so John is talking about this here. He says, The third noble truth is the truth of cessation. When we have knowledge of cessation, we begin to endure through some of these difficult desires rather than just reacting habitually to them or impulsively following them. We are less attached to the desires less invested in satisfying them. We let them cease naturally. We endure them through boredom or pain, (coughs) through doubt and despair, knowing they will end. It sounds pretty gloomy if you take it too literally, but looking at it another way, understanding cessation is a part of maturing emotionally. Because right now, you know, as as a... With a conventional mind, a normal mind or a normally diluted mind, when a desire, a strong desire comes up or a strong attachment comes up, we just assume out of ignorance that to be happy, I got to do something about that attachment or desire. It has to be fulfilled. But as our insight deepens, when we have more and more insight of cessation, then we have more confidence that when there's a strong attachment desire, The appropriate thing is to stay with this intention to understand that the pain of this attachment and desire will cease on its own. We don't need to gratify it for it to cease. And the delusion, the the reason that we're deluded, delusion or being deluded is appropriate here, is we're deluded because we think that the pain that comes up when we're attached, when we really want something or really want to get away from something, We're deluded in thinking that that pain won't go away unless that desire is satisfied, gratified. So if we're really angry at somebody, it goes, you know, craving and anger, they're just flip sides of the same thing. So if we're really angry at somebody, it's like we won't, that pain, that burning of the anger, won't go away unless we get even, or unless we see that that person gets their karmic fruit for the bad thing they did. So, but if we're if we're practicing the Four Noble Truths, which means we're maintaining the intention of understanding. It's like, we're really getting that. My life is about deepening understanding. So then we're patient with that yucky feeling of being angry. We're patient, we're watching it, we're opening to it. We're opening to the pain of it, not the thoughts about it, but the actual feeling entangled and burdened and heavy with it. And we'll find that it goes away. It doesn't last forever. I mean, just think about the times we've been really angry. Where has it gone? Think of the times we've been full of craving or lust, and it's also passed away. So these things cease on their own, naturally on their own. When we actually see it consciously, wakefully, it going away, it changes our relationship to attachment. We don't believe it as much as we did the moment before. Because all of a sudden that delusion that this pain won't go away unless this is satisfied, that delusion gets undermined. It gets weakened. Now it's still there because it has tremendous momentum, of course. We've been following that pattern for so long. Attachments need to be gratified. Cravings need to be gratified. The more we see that they cease on their own, the more we don't believe them when they arise in the mind. They still arise. They may even arise with vivid, living color, with a lot of power, potency. But there's a kind of growing wisdom. You know, it's like maybe not so. Like maybe I don't actually have to get this just because there's a strong attachment or desire. Maybe I can just sit, be with this feeling, the yuckiness of it. With the intention of just understanding it and then when the cessation happens then we wake up to that ah this attachment this pain has ceased it is not here it is not in the heart mind the mind heart is not entangled anymore it's free of entanglements and it's like this and we didn't do anything intentionally to make that happen We were just sitting there, observing, open. So we see, we begin to trust. This is like the beginning of real confidence and trust in the path when we have some more conscious experiences of the third noble truth. When we see how the heart can be all wrapped up, all feeling burdened with some story, some problem in our life, something we think we need, wrapped up, we really are working with it. You know, we go from the story and we remember to come back to the pain. The story, we come back to the pain. We go back to the story because it's so seductive. We come back to the pain. So This is the work of meditation practice. Returning to the visceral experience right here. How it feels here in this moment. Not the story, but the actual moment-to-moment feeling. Here, here, here. And then it just evaporates in a moment. It's like there's solid ground and it's not pleasant, it hurts, it's painful, it's tight. And then it's like there's no ground. That's the space of non-suffering in that moment. It's like it's not there. And that insight, seeing that cessation, teaches us something deeply. It it basically reprograms the mind. We don't need to reprogram the mind. Did you see that, Mark? (laughs) <laughs> you were all bound up and now you're not. Don't forget that. You know, we don't even need to remember that because the moment to moment scene of that changes our understanding. Just like if you know, when we uh, you know, when we fall in love, it's like we don't need to read books about falling in love because we've had the experience. Or when we, you know, eat too much, we know that experience. And it's the same thing. When we see the cessation We really get that the heart does not need to be burdened up. And not only does it not have to be burdened with this particular problem, but it's universalized. We really get, especially when it's a clear insight, we really get that the heart doesn't have to be burdened about anything. Now, that doesn't mean we won't get burdened again. Of course, there's so much momentum. We will get burdened. So we need this insight many, 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 many times. Sometimes the insight is really deep, and it has a more potent effect on the conditioning of the mind. Sometimes the, the insight is very slight, and it has just a relatively minor effect on the mind. But we do this awareness practice with the intention to deepen understanding for this insight. The insight of the, uh, the availability of freedom here and now with this life as it is. We don't need different circumstances or conditions to be a happy, free being, an unburdened being. And that really begins to change how we are in the, in the world, because then, if as that insight deepens, then what do we do with our life? If we don't need anything to be happy, our life becomes more and more about Generosity. Taking care of all beings, which includes ourselves. It doesn't mean we don't save for retirement or brush our teeth. But but all that we do in the world then becomes an act of generosity because there's a deepening confidence and direct experience with a kind of peace or contentment that's not dependent on getting things or not getting things. You know, and this is what it means to become. um, A good person or a saint is somebody. You know, when we see those kinds of people or hear about those kinds of people, we we wonder, well, how do they do it? Well, actually, it's no personal effort to do it—to be kind or generous, to be courageous—because there's an inner contentment. There's no personal, self-centered tightness. So it's like the personality is let free, let loose to respond to whatever needs to be done in the world. i just read one more thing and then open it up for discussion. So here uh, Ajahn Samir is talking a little bit more directly about practicing with the Third Noble Truth. He says, when you try to get rid of fear or anger, What happens? You just get restless or discouraged, and you have to go eat something or smoke or drink or do something else. But if you wait and endure restlessness, greed, hatred, doubt, despair, and sleepiness, if you observe these conditions as they cease and end, you will attain a kind of calm and mental clarity, which you never achieve if you're always going after something else. This is the virtue of meditation. If you sit and patiently endure, you will find your mind going into a state of calm. That calm occurs because there is no more trying to become something or trying to get rid of something. There's a kind of inner peace or relaxation of the mind in which you stop following the struggle to become or to have sensory pleasure or to get rid of some unpleasant condition that you're experiencing. So you are at ease with those conditions. You begin to learn to be at ease with pain, with restlessness, with mental anguish, and so forth. And then you find that your mind will be very clear, very bright, very calm. And this is the cessation. Nibbana, nirvana, just means cessation. It's just the English word for nibbana or nirvana is cessation. In the West, you know, we tend to use the word enlightenment, but the actual literal literal translation is the cessation of suffering. And I think it's more useful to say cessation than enlightenment. Enlightenment, you know, it's it's, it's kind of a loaded word. But cessation of suffering, cessation of greediness, cessation of, uh, of anger, cessation of confusion, that's a pretty practical and useful definition or phrase. So I'll leave it here so people can share from your own practice. We've been working with these Four Noble Truths. So any experiences you have about seeing dukkha, seeing the cause, seeing the end that you'd like to share? or Any questions that you have about the talk tonight that seem relevant? And then the parallel insight to that is that the, the craving gets reinforced if we do gratify it. I mean, it sort of sets a, a mental habit up that we think we have to smoke for this to go away. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. This is a great practice. So if you have... Uh, addictive patterns in your life. They don't have to be as serious as like being addicted to smoking But even relatively minor addictions you can use that that approach Like when you you're feeling that addiction like let's like say you you like to snack while you watch TV something relatively minor like that Then you're sitting there watching TV and you feel The attachment then then just sit there. I mean you could put it on mute if you want and, and then just sit and just see if you can watch that attachment to getting some food cease, and it will be so enlightening to actually say, oh, it just went away. It's not there anymore. Now that doesn't mean it won't come back. But the more you watch it cease, the less it will come back. It begins to unwind as a habit because you're not re-establishing the habit by acting it out. That's how a habits unwind is by to non-use.
0: Greg. I've had moments of strong desire, and I have actually just, rather than gratify it, I have chosen to um, be with the suffering in that moment, and it's, it's it's very subtle how it does go away. So I know it works, mm-hmm. but so oftentimes I'll have that moment, and I just don't. You know, I don't want to go through the pain of being intimate with it. I'd rather follow my habit. Because I've been conditioned to do something about it. So it's hard to remember, you know, what we're what we're talking about tonight, which is perfectly clear. But in that moment it's hard to remember that.
1: Absolutely. And that's why to really do this, this is deep practice. You know, I think I mentioned the first couple of weeks. The Buddha wouldn't teach this to people. He would first teach, you know, the teachings of sīla, uh, living a harmonious life with non-harming and kindness, and living a generous life, because that really stabilizes us and brings up a lot of wholesome uh, joy in our life when we're living that kind of life. And so when we're sort of burdened by life and a little bit worn out and overwhelmed by life, it is really hard to do that. We want it... It seems like going... acting out the attachment is the easy way. And it, it only is the easy way because we're not taking the big picture. Like, if we saw what that's setting in motion, we would never do that. But we don't. We just, we're just we just in the moment and we just want a little relief. And this seems to provide be the way to get some short-term relief and at some level it's true the actual practice requires more energy more intentionality in the moment it's much easier just to let habit energy do its thing so it is harder but it's you know the hard way is actually the easy way in the long run so it's just about whether you're taking a short-term view or a long-term view and uh, the more we take the long-term view Then we start doing things in our life so that we're not so overwhelmed because we know that if we're overwhelmed we will just take the easy way the short-term easy way yeah i mean i remember one tibetan teacher said something like you know in a perfect world you would never work more than 20 hours a week you know you'd all have good jobs so that you could earn enough to live on 20 hours a week so that you know you could actually uh develop a life that allowed this practice to unfold more easily but we have the life we have we still have an incentive to develop this practice even if it's not easy you know you have children besides having a busy job you have children it isn't easy i'm sure it's not easy but it's it's harder to not do this practice there's more suffering not doing the practice than to do it and it's really about taking the long-term view. And if you read the Discourses, the Buddha is always talking about the long-term view, like about what is being set in motion. And a lot of you know that in the Buddhist tradition, there's a, a lot of talk about rebirth. And that we're not just doing this practice for this lifetime, but this we've been sort of dealing with this, these conditions for many, many lifetimes. Now, I don't have any personal evidence to that, but uh, I think it's worth keeping our minds open that really, like, what, what is these, are these existences about? If I'm just sort of repeating this another lifetime, trying to get ahead, trying to get enough money, trying to take care of my body, and then another, and then another, and then another, it can evoke a, a, a interest in wanting to understand more deeply What's going on? Linda? I'm not sure
0: how to ask this as usual. I, I have a couple of questions, but one is about it, it's so hard to talk about this stuff because you're using words, and you, I mean, it's not like you can say, you know, this works It's just, you know, you can keep talking about it in different ways, and I try to understand what that means for sitting at home. Mm hmm. So if you're detaching from the story that you're going for the cause, I mean, to me, the cause is the story, and if I can detach from the story, that is the cause. So when
1: you say I'm looking for the cause, what does mean? Yeah, I understand the question. It's a good question. So it's true that on the level of the story, there are causes, right? So on that level, like, you know, the way that I was raised or the, that person's stuff is the cause for this problem in my life but we're not asking about the cause of that the first thing we we recognize is there is dukkha so we're we're at that point we're separating the actual feeling of hurt being burdened from the story and we're looking right here oh okay so then then just so just stay here then we're saying this experience right here the contraction in the heart it has a cause right now it has a cause now, that's different than the cause for the, the story or the, the circumstance in your life. It's like, how is this pain, this burden, is, how is that getting created right now? What are the causes and conditions that allow that feeling of burden, the feeling of weight to come to be? And it's not
0: a mental thing like, oh, there's
1: the cause, it's blank. It is a mental thing. But it's a mental thing arising in the moment, right?
0: Yeah.
1: So that's what you're looking at. You're, you're beginning to see, like, what what um, way of relating, you know, what view or way of relating to the story is the supporting cause for that feeling, that suffering, that stress or entanglement. So how do you
0: do that without getting caught up in another mental
1: well the, yeah, yeah, well i I gave the example of worrying, but let's just say uh, um, somebody's really hurt us, so somebody said something to me, um, let's say somebody gets up in the middle of the talk and walks out, you know, and slams the door, and let's say I wasn't feeling so good about the talk to begin with, and it just like really cuts deep, like I'm not doing a good job, so a lot of doubt let's say comes up and and after the talk, I'm sitting, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling like uh, a lot of doubt and a lot of pain for that doubt. I'm identified with it, and I don't want it to be this way. I wish my talk were, had been better or something like that. And so I might sit down, and what, I, what I'll do, because I've been doing this a while, is like I really, I go, I, my mind knows how to concentrate on the pain. And I know how to be wholeheartedly, wholly with the pain so much that the story recedes into the background. And then the reason I know how to do that is, and anybody can do this, is because the pain is actually more predominant than the story. The story looks predominant, but actually the, the, the pain, the feeling of, of whatever that pain is, that hurt is more predominant. That's actually what the mind wants to look at or open to or be with. So there I am. The is already receded. Now, that pain, uh, it's not even that you, you sort of are identifying the cause and pointing it out. Just in getting more and more intimate with the pain, it's like the cause gets abandoned. So the actual movement through the Four Noble Truths they're not even like different practices. It's not a different practice. It's just a path of understanding or intimacy, a path of understanding driven by mindfulness, calm, clear, non-judging attention to what's predominant. That's the, the practice never shifts. So you don't have to think about like what to do at different stages. You're simply learning to let the pain reveal itself. The pain reveals itself as the cause. The cause reveals itself as abandoning the cause, the the cause falling away, which reveals itself as cessation. So it's like peeling away layers, and it's just that interest, basically the mind knows intuitively what's predominant. But to to sort of initiate the cycle, to, to initiate the process of discernment, we have to break free of our attachment to the story. And the way we do that is this initial insight, which is there is pain. There is hurt right here in the heart. It may be subtle, maybe kind of pervasive feeling of numbness, it may be a very direct, obvious squeeze in the heart, contraction in the heart. But we, we learn, you know, we start with things that are obvious and then we start to wake up to more subtle kinds of dukkha. But the, the actual process is just to stay clear and open and letting the pain reveal itself. And it, it, it will peel itself away. We just, we're just sort of staying there and not, and basically the real work is not forgetting the pain. Because as soon as we, we forget the pain, we're going to be into the story. Because there's like these habits of deflection, you know, going from the pain to the story about the pain. And so we got to stay really clear that this is Dukkha, and it's relevant. And just keep following it in, and everything takes care of it from there. Does that does that help at all? Yeah, well, I tried this this week. And, I mean, I don't know if I can say that everything takes care of itself. It's interesting, but, you know... You well, talk about what happened, if you can. Can you articulate the process of what happened?
0: Oh, God... Well, I was recording in the studio, and it was like paying exorbitant of money to have every tiny foible magnified a thousand fold and shoved back in your face. That's how it felt. And at a certain point, I mean, when I got done, I I made it through the four hours barely, you know, and then I'm sitting in my car just freaking out. I mean, just stopping from tension, you know. And, you know, I was saying to myself, you know, thinking I'm a, I should never have become a musician feels like this, uh-huh. and having the thought that, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. so I did that for a long time, and it was actually kind of humorous after a while, but well, then, you know, I got home later, and somebody asked me about it, and then it just kind of came all back, and so I said, okay, I'm going to do this, you know, and I, I just sat down and, and, you know, tried to just go for the, the feeling, and I don't know. I mean, I just, I didn't. You know, it's like I'm so in my mind. It's really hard not to go to get caught up in. Okay, what should I be thinking about going down there? Or you know. Mm-hmm. So I kind of tried to feel where it is in my body, which is kind of here. And then I, I don't know. I just read this thing from a path of heart, and and was talking about you know, kind of asking questions or noticing what the qualities of it are. Mm-hmm. So I noticed that, you know, okay, like you said, soft or hard? We'll really hard. Okay. Is it warm or cold? Well, you know, I looking warm, cold, cold, warm. <laughs> you know, I, was, I thought, okay. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was, you know, the longer I, I kept thinking about it i mean i not thinking about it the longer i kept being with this boy you know it was just there kind of bolting out this anguish you know this freaking outness and i don't know i mean eventually i got up so but it's not like i
1: So you wanted complete and full enlightenment.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so Linda, what's your sense, though, of that effort that you made? Was it wholesome? Oh, I mean, I did it in a spirit of
0: wanting to help myself, so I
1: guess, yeah. Did it feel like you did anything uh, that was unwholesome in 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 that sit that you had after you got home? I mean, it sounds to me really healing what you did. I mean, given what the alternative would have been. See, first of all, I hope people understand this is a charged area in Linda's life. So this is not like working with a small thing. This is working with one of the biggest things in your life. And uh, and so we can't expect this kind of great success with this huge issue. We generally practice with small things like knee pain, you know, (laughs) and and itches. And and you know just sort of restless mind, but this is a big a big issue. Now, ask yourself, what would you uh, what would you have likely have done with all that energy, mental energy, if you hadn't sat? Like compare. Right,
0: right. But I think I would have I think I would have run with the story a
1: lot longer. Right, and that big knife in your heart. Would that have, if you had run with the story, what would that feeling have been like? Less or more? Because sometimes we think that because we're paying attention to that big knife in the heart, you know, as you described it, that it's worse, but we're just intimate with it. It's there anyway and it and it's getting reinforced if we're running with the story. So it's true that because we're paying attention to it, it seems bigger, but that pain is there whether or not we pay attention to it. and it's exhausting to not pay attention to that pain. We have all we need to. That's why our stories are so dramatic. They've got to be so loud to keep us from feeling the pain that we're in. And they've got to be refreshed with such vigilance to keep us from feeling the pain that we have. So in a way, it's really uh, healing and freeing, just on the level that you're talking about, Linda, Um, just to be willing to be more intimate with the pain and less caught in the story is really healing. Just that alone is really healing. Even if it was only for 20 minutes and then the rest of the next three days you were running with the story, then at least in those minutes you weren't and your mind wasn't being heated up and you weren't reinforcing those patterns that we reinforce, reinforce when we're not just feeling the pain or more feeling the pain. And I
0: actually, I think that if I hadn't done that, I would have probably, you know, done what I often do, which is that as I have another experience like that coming up, and I'm going kind to of avoid it, and I, to yeah. eat, and I want to, watch TV, and I want to eat, and I want to sleep, and do anything to face, you know, to avoid facing that I'm going to face this again on, you know, at eleven o'clock on such and such a
1: day. So. And again, this is a very intense experience, but we gain a lot of confidence when we are able to sit with that kind of intense pain. And like you said, that changes our choices that we make down the road, because we're less likely to avoid those situations in life, because we know, I've been there, I survived, I'll survive it again. You know. So there's a, and that's not a small thing. We, we cause a lot of suffering for ourselves avoiding things that we need to face. Unfortunately, we need to leave it here, but we can pick it up again next week. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.